It's four o'clock, so it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jen Bartlett. And it's spring at last and some warmer weather ahead. Also ahead, Bougainville, the long struggle for independence, and it's not over. I'll be speaking with Marilyn Pavini, who's lived through many years of that struggle. Medical apartheid, the unequal impact of COVID-19 on Israel and Palestine speaking with Dr John Guy from Adelaide, the 70th anniversary of ANZUS, War Powers Reform, and more with Dr Alison Rynowska, and the AFP and human rights abuses in West Papua, Jason McLeod. First, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when big economic guru Josh Pride in icebergs responded to the growing army criticising the JobKeeper billions, 25 billion according to Josh's own department, presumably a minimum 25 bill, ripped off by caring employers who did not qualify with a scintillating retort which put them in their place. They're making it political. We said last week that politics has no place in politics, and yet here we go again. Misguided, long-haired, commie, greeny critics, including a true blue Aussie capitalist review columnist, and goodness me, how long more long-haired, commie, greeny can you get, who still think politics has some relationship with politics. And anyway, great retailer Jerry Harvey for me and Harvey for me gave back six mil of the millions he got after announcing a few trillion profit. And I think we'd all agree Jerry deserves every cent of the corporate welfare he enjoys and he does enjoy life. He's always smiling and happy and always proffering advice to government and all of us on steps we can take to making even more money. And Jerry would agree with Josh that it is far more important to take action against welfare recipients and workers to whom a bit of the JobKeeper trillions trickled down, whom they allege were overpaid, because Jerry is an honourable man, and if the government does inadvertently overpay a welfare recipient, then that welfare recipient is clearly breaking the law. Whereas Josh and Jerry know ripping off JobKeeper is not illegal because Josh just forgot to write into the law that those who falsely claimed all that lovely corporate welfare were breaking the law. And as Josh says and Jerry nods, you can't go after people who haven't broken the law. And what's a 25 bill ripoff between friends? Friends like Angus Armour Prophet, supremo of the Troubadour Aussie Institute of Company Directors, who praised Joss for his directions to the corporate regulator ASIC that it drop its litigation mantra and instead contribute to the government's economic goals and not limit business discretion and flexibility to operate in the manner they see fit, uh, while still complying with the law. But if they're not complying with the law, for God's sake, don't do anything about it. See, ASIC has been litigating against the business class based on the recommendations of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission into the financial sector, which did uncover the odd illegality and spectacular rip-off. But thankfully, the government forced to hold that inquiry against its will has now pretty well ensured it's dragged us back to pre-commission laissez-faire which the Commission found was mostly very, very laissez-unfair. So company directors are happy with this, Angus? We asked Angus. Ecstatic, 
Angus, for some reason, couldn't stop rubbing his hands together. Nonetheless, the directive did cause a rush for the smelling salts in a few barristers' chambers, good advocates of the law, who have mastered the art of dragging cases out for years and ensuring many never see the light of at their usual very reasonable daily rates. Having been trapped in a corner and forced to hold the finance commission, the one serious inclusion by the caring business class government was the term of reference designed to separate workers from their superannuation, transfer all that lovely, lovely money to where it belongs with the caring business class and the great financial institutions, which unfortunately backfired big time and nailed the caring business class and the great financial institutions with the ongoing crusade to ignore those facts and get that lovely lovely to where it belongs still backfiring as the latest figures show the industrial super funds are still far outperforming the caring business class and the great financial institutions although as we reported a couple of weeks ago Josh and his co-conspirator former Institute of Public very very private affairs official and now Polly Tim will get them son have launched an inquiry into how those pesky super funds the industrial ones are upsetting the capitalist system. No prize for guessing what Josh and Tim are going to come up with. Josh and Tim and the company directors, Angus, explained that the industrial funds outperforming the caring business class and great financial institutions is a communist plot, a commie plot, to undermine and expose the great corporate sector by appearing to do better and making it appear workers, lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions can play capitalism better than the capitalists, better than their caring employers. Uh, but, but, but they are doing better. But only because they simply have no idea how capitalism works. Not that there aren't a few problems in workers effectively through their investments in the greatest little economic order of them all, employing and exploiting other workers like this. Uh, this is not a particularly amusing item, listener. Like this disputed Ausgrid, the New South Wales power grid company, whose majority shareholders are industrial super funds with the Electrical Trades Union declaring it will, quote, continue this fight against Ausgrid and its industry super fund owners until our workers are offered a fair pay rise as well as nationally legislated super increases. With the union planning one-hour stoppages every day this week and Ausgrid responding that if workers take one hour off, they won't be paid for the whole day. Workers employing workers. No laughs or satire in that one. U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Joe Biden with capital, told us the alliance with Trublawazi is essential to preserving peace and prosperity. Uh, like the coalition of the killing preserved peace and prosperity in Afghanistan, Joe. Exactly. And in Iraq, certainly. And in Vietnam? Oh yes, we have liberated people across the globe by bringing them the great benefits of liberty, freedom and democracy. Uh, but in Vietnam, the National Liberation Front was the enemy we attempted to slaughter. Was that in order to liberate them from their liberation? They had a different evil idea of liberation, uh, which won the war, only because they were too evil to comprehend how we were trying to help them. Napalm, Agent Orange still rampant in their environment, trying to bomb them into oblivion, that sort of thing. They were too stupid to realize what was good for them. 
like the Afghans, the Iraqis, the Libyans, with well, a long list. We can't help it if these people are too backward to accept our help. But then Joe did say, no embellishment, that the evacuation from Kabul had been an extraordinary success, which says something about his mental state. He's more demented than we thought, although it was certainly extraordinary. And the good news is that our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Marie's Payne in there, and the Minister for Offence and Trained Killing Constable Peter Duffer are heading off to the US OB to pay homage at Joe's court and show we're not backward and stupid. Uh, not backward and stupid, Peter. Like, you know, like, you know, you know, like, no. Mm, a prime example, that Pete. And our man in the US of, former caring business class polyarpha sins have done us, said evil China was a bigger threat than the 9-11 Saudis who forced the US of to invade Afghanistan. So Marie's and Pete and Arthur would have us invading China. Now, isn't that guaranteed to be one of the great military success stories? Like all those other success stories obeying the orders from our train killer headquarters in the Pentagon. And Big Supremo scuttled them more lash than a.k.a. Scummo said the U.S. of alliance was essential to our recovery from the coronavirus. He really said that. He just didn't provide us with any details to explain his brilliant thought bubble. And if we thought there was light at the end of all this trained killer mongering, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony all being oozy said he would spend more trillions to make our trained killers even more ready to go about their proud profession of killing people. But do please spare a thought for our former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Alexander, who wrote the extraordinary success had shaken his faith in our great ally and very, very, very close friend. Today's leaders were minnows compared to great US of big supremos of the past, including the great Ronnie Reagan, who was demented most of the time. So what's that say about Joe and Alexander, for that matter? Our vexatious ranter Clive Parmagina's rave this week is again something we can agree with. We can never trust the caring business class or socialist parties. See? So far, so good. But then he adds, again. And that's where our agreement ends, because we've never trusted them in the first place. Notice Craig Killy, the planet, who departed the caring business class Hayseed and Sheepshead Coalition because it was so pathetically soft on coal, even suggesting coal may have to be phased out by some time next century, has become parliamentary leader of Clive's United True Blue Aussie Party. Those two should make a formidable electoral force. No relationship to coal into the next century, but seeing New York Mayor's response to the massive storms and floods hitting his city was, the time has come to learn the lessons from these extreme events. They say that every time, which is just about every day. Slow learners, obviously. Although in fairness to Craig Killy the planet, he knows there is no relationship between extreme events and climate change, which the extreme events are, because climate change isn't. Like, finally, poor Santos has the profits, which is distraught that it has invested trillions into its Narrabri coal seam gas project, but as yet has not received approval because all these bloody, long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden-working and iron environmental lots keep challenging it in court.
Even though San Tosas the Prophets points out there is a frightening scarcity of new gas development on the East Coast as developers struggle to get projects off the ground. Or we might say under the ground, but the worry is the anti-progress long-haired commie lots would probably use a different word than frightening, might even see frightening as applying if the project does go ahead, showing us, as said, as us the prophets knows, how frightening they are. Good afternoon. And uh, good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And it'll be good morning tomorrow at 9 o'clock for City Limits. The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. Listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. On the 30th of August, Bougainvillians celebrated the 20th anniversary of the Bougainville Peace Accord that was signed between the people of Bougainville and the government of PNG on August 30, 2001. This agreement formally ended the Bougainville crisis and signified the cessation of hostilities between the people of Bougainville and the PNG government, setting the foundation for peace and opening up the way for Bougainville to pursue its own aspirations for self-determination. Moses and Marilyn Havini were major figures in the decades leading up to that agreement. Sadly, Moses is no longer with us, but Marilyn continues to live and work on Booker Island. She is in Australia to visit family, and I spoke to her there. And in the final part of the interview, Marilyn is joined by her daughter's newborner, Polly Puppy. Marilyn, it was a long and hard journey leading up to the agreement, being signed on the 30th of August 2001. Can you look back over that journey and hopes and aspirations of the people of Bougainville? Well, Moses and I had lived for 20 years in Bougainville, between the village, between Mbuka and then Arawa, where the main government had been set up and Moses had been initially the very first Bougainvillean with a university degree to return to Bougainville. And, and we started in the colonial system. We started with Moses being the only non-white person working with the administration and gradually others came on board such as who later became you know very significant people the ones that you'll see in the history books and Moses preferred to work be the engine room to really work 
at implementing and doing things. So, but he did end up being Speaker of the Parliament during that period. And we did raise the flag with the UDI on the 1st of September 1975. And that was in response to us being promised to have what you would now call autonomy or self-government, along with Papua New Guinea gaining their independence in 1975. And in fact, Moses had been the chief executive officer setting that up. And he'd been off to America and studied state constitutions and was coming back to write that into the PNG constitution. But PNG were hailed by the UN to have it tabled very quickly. And they didn't wait for Moses to get back from America. He was on his way back, woke up in Hawaii to find out that Bougainville was seceding, which is what our leaders that had been his team back in Bougainville had decided to do after they'd reneged after on the three years of setting up. For Moses and myself, this has been an extremely long journey. We never, ever imagined that we could descend into a war, that it would become then a hijacked and went through a failed peace process in 1994 into becoming then a civil war with rival governments, one rival government to the interim Bougainville government being set up by the PNG. Yeah, the negotiations became very, very complex. And in fact, the Australian news would always say this is a war far too complex for us to explain. Never, ever letting Australians know that they were the initiators of the whole thing for the compromise, for the sake of the fact that Australia had promised PNG independence on the back of the financing of it from the Bougainville compromise. And that's why they called it secession and would not allow Bougainville with our UDI ahead of PNG. We raised our flag ahead of PNG to say, we'll stand up beside you. You don't have to worry about leaving us out now because we'll stand up together. That's what our dream was as Bougainvilleans, the people of Bougainville. The Australian government would not allow that. So although we never did enter into the PNG UDI on the 16th of September, Australia still called it a secession that we had broken away from them. Talk about what it was like in the late 80s, which led up to the war starting. In the late 80s, People were getting frustrated because we had been through, ever since, we had paced peace talks in 1976. It almost turned into a war in 1976, and they had peace talks at Rovo Island. PNG at that point said, we hear you, Bougainville, we will let you have self-government, and they set us up as a province, when in fact at that time all of Papua New Guinea were districts, and we got provincial government as their way of trying to say you're a separate region and you can have your own House of Assembly, which we did. And that's what Moses, my husband, was the Chief Executive Officer to set up that and then then became the Speaker of it. But then Papua New Guinea, the rest of Papua New Guinea wanted the same. Papua New Guinea went through several up and down periods where initially they got excited and gave every district, uh, localised them and gave them semi-autonomy and made them provinces. When they did that, A lot of those provinces weren't ready for that, hadn't thought of doing it, failed at it. Subsequent Papua New Guineans, I haven't got the exact dates in my head of when the changes of government happened, but Papua New Guinea then said, this is failing, let's re-centralise. When they re-centralised the whole of Papua New Guinea, they took away everything from Bougainville as well. They didn't leave us with our option to remain a province. We were also called provinces, but they rejected all the houses of assembly and they set in governors 
when they set in governors, we, uh, at the same time, Bougainville was doing another thing. We were trying to negotiate a better arrangement over the mine. They had never, ever consulted Bougainville when they created the mine, the Australian government, the colonial government and Papua New Guinea. Bougainville was not party to it. Bougainville didn't have a look in. Every five years, there was supposed to be an opportunity for a moratorium for us to look at it. And every five years that they tried, there would be a vote of no confidence in the Papua New Guinea parliament and Bougainville was shelved. This happened continually. It was just an ongoing cycle so that the environmental damage after several years of mining from 75 until the late 80s was devastating to the people and the whole new argument of the ecological, environmental issues, the living issues, the health issues were surfacing as the people started to protest. And that's when Francis Owner, who'd been a surveyor in BCL, walked out and started an opposition to PNG, just ignoring, totally ignoring any opportunity for Bougainvilleans to sit down and talk with them and sort it all out. In their protests, they blew up a few pylons and they tried to stop the mine to force the talks. When PNG's response was to send in first the police, when they sent in the police in those 80s, what you were asking that period of the late 80s, the police came in as riot squads and they tried to terrorise the people back from protest. So when their abuses were out of control, PNG sent in the army, their own PNG dear, under policing powers to subdue the people. So that created open conflict, 89. Can you talk a bit more about how that mine impacted on the local people and also the people downstream? That mine is in the central mountains of Bougainville. It, it was actually a mountain. Where the mine is situated, there were three basic clans. Uh, and the, the town, uh, sorry, villages living on that mountain were all displaced and moved to be on the hillsides facing the mountain becoming a hole, the deepest man-made hole in the southern hemisphere. It was three miles by one and a half miles, and I forget how deep it was, but it was just devastating. And more than just the area, the central area of Bougainville that that affected, the port mine access road went to the east coast and so they displaced all the villages of the Roravana people and Rada villages along the east coast to build in the infrastructure for shipping it all out and for administration. All the tailings went out to the west coast. They claimed that they were not breaking any environmental legislation but in fact nobody had written the laws that should have been written over how they dealt with that mining waste. And so, really, the mine cut Bougainville in half. It just went right across from east to west coast, up and down the mountains. The damage that was done went way out into the ocean. You know, the, And the moonscape, the, the Java River, that was the main tributary or river, main river that took the overflows of the, uh, the mine waste, it became the biggest moonscape, several miles wide, all the way to the sea. But more than that, it ran into whole directions that they hadn't built the infrastructure to contain. They were supposed to have built pipes and things to bring it out and drop it into the sea, but 
the mind was going at such a rapacious rate, they never did finish that. There are whole areas of South Bougainville on the southwest coast that were inundated, that were flooded. Uh, my daughter has done a, an artwork, Conywara, where you're going through swamps. She's been in those swamps and filmed it all that was once land, and the people have totally lost all their land. So it wasn't just the people affected by the mine itself. There were also the people affected by all of the environmental waste on the whole west coast from central Bougainville way down into the south. And then you've got all the people affected by the infrastructure and development that they were shut out from development, that they watched other people take over their beaches and their village sites and build a great western township and lifestyle that they couldn't join. There was a lot of resentment that naturally, if you understand Indigenous living, they own their land. They've owned it for generations, for centuries. And you cannot impinge on somebody else's land. You can't just move somebody off your land and park you somewhere else because you're then on their land and they'll fight you. When you take land off Indigenous people, they've got nowhere. They're totally, totally displaced. What happened once the pylons went down? That's when they brought in the police. They stopped the mine. The BRA were not a BRA at that point. They weren't an army. They were, they were militants and they were pretty localised from just the surrounding villages. But the, as they advised all the Bougainvilleans working in the mine, if you care about what's happening to us, walk out. And so they did. A lot of the Bougainvilleans went home, left the, left the mine and went home and felt very sorry for their brothers and what they were going through. And in fact, when the police came in and the army came in and they did an abysmal job, the way they handled everything, and the government never came and negotiated. Instead, they put up a blockade, a total blockade that sealed off Bougainville from the rest of the world. With that blockade, the rest of Bougainville said, right, this isn't just the mine. This isn't, this isn't just Panguna. This is the whole colonial system that has tried to control our people, not given us our freedom. And now when they put the blockade, they withdrew the banks, they withdrew, they shut down every public service, they shut the schools, they shut the hospitals, they took all the staff away. They just packed it right out, believing that Bougainville would cave in within six months. Bougainville didn't. It rose the flag and had another UDI and declared independence. That was in 1991. The blockade went up in 1990. What was the Australian government's role in that blockade? Unfortunately, the Australian government supported Papua New Guinea. They had a very strong uh, relationship, bilateral relationship, where PNG was still being supported for its good governance or lack of through foreign aid. And so the millions that were given to Papua New Guinea by Australia for Papua New Guinea to operate as a country were funneled into the war. When I was doing some human rights abuse compilations in the mid-90s, Senator Dima gets asked a question of the parliament on our behalf to provide, the Australian government to provide how much money they had given to the war effort over the years, and of course they have to answer. So we did have a table printed, given to us 
where it ranged from 10 million one year Australian dollars to 23 million to oh there were so many so many years but I think the highest got to was 56 million Australian dollars one year. It also supplied the helicopters, four helicopters, and supplied patrol boats to outrun the boats, the BRA boats that were carrying people across for medical help into the Solomon Islands. Yes, Australia policy at that time was to support Papua New Guinea that was claiming it was an, a Papua New Guinea internal issue. And, of course, their whole agenda was to get the mine reopened. But to this day, that mine has not reopened. I think our Bougainvilleans quite rightly say that they're the only Indigenous people in the world that has been able to shut down a multinational global mining company and keep it shut. Can you talk a little about the human rights abuses that you collated? Yes, the, the human rights abuses were already starting when we were living in Bougainville before the blockade. We, we were on, Moses and I were on the very last plane out of Bougainville, the last commercial flight, because Moses was on a death list. He was, they were hunting for him. He refused to go to the bush and pick up arms. He was, was a peaceful person who wanted to negotiate, wanted to, to lead by um, peaceful means. But uh, things had, you know, people, there were guns. This, this had gone way past that, and there was no safe place. And we were lifted out, or we chose to go, but with a support from the Australian government for our human rights condition. At that stage, we were seeing in the Arawa Bulletin that there were already about 100 cases reported by the expatriate people living in the town, running their own uh, town newspaper. So I took those with me, and that worried me. But Moses very quickly, when the blockade went up and he was contacted before all the radio connections and phones were shut down, by the leadership left saying, Moses, you're the only Bougainvillian in the outside world that can speak for us with the blockade going, would you represent us? So Moses was appointed the overseas representative. And then using the mission skeds where, where priests and other church people had their own radio system between Bougainville and the Solomons. And at six o'clock at night, they would send messages. These reports were coming out of human rights abuses that then the missions in the Solomons were passing down to Moses and Moses was starting to write them into the press releases and they became more and more alarming and we got so many cases that no matter how much we reported them or Moses wrote them in his press releases and we spoke of them at public meetings, nobody took us seriously because we didn't have photographic evidence. Moses and I attended with a few other people at the World Conference for human rights in Vienna in 1993. And when I saw the visuals that are needed by you know, other countries suffering to get the world attention, it horrified me, but I realized that's what we had to compete with. At that point, Moses turned around and said to me, well, you know, he was carrying too many other roles, including all the media and the political and negotiation. He's, he gave me the human rights portfolio I thought, what am I going to do with this? I, I went home learning so much at that World Conference. I looked up all the different categories of abuses that the Human, Human Rights Commission recognises, their special language and what they call certain types of abuse, such as um, ambuscades and, and whether, whether it's murder or whether it's an extrajudicial execution. Because if 
somebody in the armed forces murders somebody, you're not allowed to call it murder. It's they're, they're under authority from the government, so it's an EJK. As I gathered all Moses' past press releases and all the evidence that we've been receiving by that stage for three years, um, I compiled one volume, and that reached the Human Rights Commission. The United Nations was alarmed and appointed a special rapporteur just on, on the killings alone to come out all the way from Geneva. He was an African, but Wale Bakre Ndaye. I remember his name and I met with him in Sydney. I provided him with a lot of more detailed information, which he went in and tried to investigate. They blocked him at every turn, the army, and even though Sir Julius Chan, who was prime minister at the time, gave him permission and said, you know, tried to say everything's fine, there's no problem, you won't see any such thing, there's no abuses happening. But he came back very, very distressed. He'd, he'd proven every case that he could find and track down, even though he was barred from getting across the other side of the blockade. He even found people who had made their way by surreptitious means to Moresby, Bougainvilleans that had come out from abuses and massacres and things and could tell stories, being shot out, shot out of the water and running the blockade to get medical attention, things like that. And he went back with that information. Meanwhile, the reports kept coming, so I wrote a second volume. By the time I was ready to print my second volume, he had produced his report back to the UN with evidence, and so I included his report back in my second volume. Both of those volumes are now part of Hansard in the Australian Federal Parliament Archives and the New South Wales Parliament. Living in Bougainville since the peace process, I've been giving that information back to the Bougainville authorities, back and to every the ICRC and UN, whoever comes through, and they're quietly working away with what they can, but there hasn't been any kind of major inquiry or anything. It must have been very painful for you to collate those people because you must have found names of people you knew well. We estimate that we lost over 100. We stopped counting of our personal relatives, of loved ones that died during that time, uh, some of them horrifically, others through just neglect, through the fact that there was no medicine. There were, And, of course, some of those stories are horrific too, of suffering, terrible suffering, because there was no medicine, there were no medical supplies, or the lengths that people went to and couldn't get the help they needed. When I went in after, as part of the Peace Process Consultative Committee, after the ceasefire in 98 and met some of the survivors of these massacres. Some of them were still at Tulagi in the Solomons with big holes in them, still years after this. I'm talking about 98 and, and the Mokakuru and Malabita massacres. Those survivors, the ones that didn't get killed in those massacres, still having daily dressings on enormous wounds and beautiful women that I just sobbed and sobbed, you know, held them in my arms. Pretty heavy stuff. Yes, yes. When I went around, when, when I went in and the truce monitors were flying us around to different places, people would be running to the helicopter, dropping through the helicopter window into my lap, more and more accounts. There was one particular time when we were flying down for some border talks. The helicopter had to do two rounds, so they put myself and Moses down at while they ferried the first lot down and came. we said we'd be happy to wait. Some kind people drove us from the airport into 
Lewin government station, we were sitting on a hillock and I thought this innocent looking, it looked like a house wing, you know, like a little shelter sort of from the shade was just over the rise from the hillock. And these men started circling us. They were intrigued who we were. One of them eventually came close and asked us our names. And when Moses said who we were, they said, oh, we thought you might be. I had not known that our names were so well known through Bovo with all this work with Moses was doing with overseas representation and my work with human rights. But this gentleman, total stranger, said, can I talk with you? And he, and so I got up and we walked around and he said, just pretend we're just walking. He wanted to show me where he had been tortured, where he had been lined up with a whole lot of others, pulled out of the care centre, brought there for questioning. And the army was screaming abuse at them. They were about to be shot. They were, they were all lined up for execution. But there were chiefs having a meeting with the PNGDF inside the government office that refused to talk unless they knew what was going on outside. So the officers inside canned the execution so that they could keep peace with the chiefs. So the, they took the bullets out of their guns, scratched the names of each person that the bullet was meant for, and made them swallow their bullets. And they said, when you pass these through the other end, bring them back, then we'll shoot you with that bullet that's got the name on it. So this happened to this man. And he, that innocent-looking shelter was actually a bunker. When we walked around the hillock, it was all dug out and it was a bunker. And that's where the whole incident had happened, right there. Well, I said, I know about this incident. It's in my book. And he said, show me, show me. So we quietly walked back. That was Moses. I opened Moses' briefcase. I got out this book because we had to look really innocent to all the bystanders. And I found it. And when he saw it, he started weeping. And he said, my name's not there. And when we read the account, the only names that were there were the ones that had the courage when they got back to the, when they were delivered back to the care centre, they didn't wait for them to pass their bullets to be shot later. They had escaped. But when they got out and into VRA safety hands, they'd only given their own names for the skids that were carried across to me. They did not give his name or other names of the other men because they wanted to protect them. But I tried to explain that to him, but he was still broken. I felt terrible that he was brokenhearted, that his suffering wasn't recorded. He saw the whole story there, but his name wasn't there. And I said, well, you know, they didn't give your name to protect you because you were still in the care centre. You were still under their power. And he understood that, but he still needed... I could see there was still a need for in reconciliation processes for their suffering to be acknowledged still. What brought all that trauma to an end? When we got the peace process in place and the ceasefire signed, Bougainville was exhausted. It was totally, totally exhausted emotionally and they didn't want to relive it. They didn't want to go through it. They just wanted to heal. We invented a peace process that they themselves said, this is what they're celebrating for 20-year anniversary this last week, that they themselves wanted peace and they said, we own the peace. We, it's our peace and we're going to keep our peace and we're going to work out, we're going to invent how that how we do that so we didn't go down the track of other nations where Moses had learned in his all his overseas international work that peacekeeping 
can bring its own issues, can bring its own problems in, that, that men away from home can become uh, rapists, you know, soldiers, these so-called peacekeepers themselves. You have to rein them in too. So Moses wanted them unarmed. And that was a scary... Our, our Bougainvilleans demanded that any anybody coming in to run the peace process would be unarmed. And we won that, you know, because we were so convincing that we owned our own peace. First the truce monitors and then the peace monitors were unarmed and they brought civilians in to match the Australian and uh, New Zealand and Vanuatu and Solomon Island troops and Fiji troops that came in. There were five nations that came in to be monitors of the truce and then of the peace process. So they all had to maintain a vigilance without arms. In doing that, people build trust and we could then start to surrender the weapons and we could build what we called reconciliations that were traditional. From ancient times, if clans had ever or tribes had ever been at war with each other, how did they create peace? They did their own traditional ceremonies. And we, and because the people have very deep faith in across many denominations of the Christian church, they brought those elements in and they built church leaders in as well. Our president, Kabui, he said he wondered, would we pull it off? With Moses, they went over to the parallel happening for East Timor because East Timor was going through everything at very time with us. They got in independence immediately, but then they had a lot of difficulty trying to gain peace and had to bring in armed peacekeepers, etc. So when Moses and Joseph Kabui went to the inauguration, you know, the opening of the East Timor independence. They came back and Kabui said, you know, we felt jealous. We felt really jealous that we didn't get our immediate independence. But he said, I'm thinking we may have chosen a better way to actually build our peace, grow our peace, grow our healing, our reconciliation, and grow our independence. Yes, we've taken a different road. And it was forced on us, by the way. Nobody was going to allow us to have immediate independence, but we have just had a referendum. 98% yes for independence was the outcome of that referendum. Amazing, stunning. So now it's the future. So now we're looking at, unfortunately, a snag with that independence being foregone conclusion, and that is that we forced that they would let us have a referendum but they forced us to make it a non-binding referendum, which means that they still get the last say. They have to accept that the outcome of our referendum, if it is for independence, that they have to allow it, that we still have to get their tick. Here we have had the most remarkable result of any referendum in the whole world to get 98.2% of all voters and the highest turnout of voters ever in Bougainville all voting for independence, you know, less than 2% wanting to stay autonomous with PNG. And yet we have to get the tick from the PNG parliament. At the moment, they've formed negotiation teams from each country. We're now an autonomous region, by the way. Since the peace process, we have got our autonomy. But the drawdown of powers have been very slow. They have reneged on the amount of money to do the drawdown of powers successfully. In previous governments of PNG, millions and millions are outstanding. So it's been very difficult for Bougainville to actually get even the autonomy that we've already got, but to actually have it implemented. 
So right now, that is happening at a fast pace. Since the recent elections for Bougainville, since the referendum, with a whole new cabinet in place, and Ishmael Toroama, who was the number two general for the BRA as our new president, he is doing a very fine job in sitting down with the new PNG Prime Minister Morapi, who, who seems to be a reasonable man who who has been a child in Bougainville. His father was an SDA pastor in Bougainville and he lived in Bougainville as a child, even though he's a PNG Highlander. But he's got to get his whole government parliament to understand and come along with him. They've come up with a date of 2027. That's a long time off. Yes. Uh, Ishmael wanted it within five years. And he, his first meeting, they've had two major negotiation periods in the last few months. At the first one, he said, we want our full independence by 2025. And then when they've had technical meetings, just mapping out everything that has to happen and be in place, there's so much work to be done that I think he's conceded two years there and allowed it to be at the very late of 2027, six years away. Thank you so much, Marilyn. I think we should identify your friend who's been helping you with this interview. Oh, oh. my daughter Taloi has a new border collie puppy. Her name is Mona. (laughs) And many thanks and best wishes to Marilyn Havini. armed states are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Banned School to learn more and be part of History in the Making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enrol at icanw.org.au forward slash school. That's icanw.org.au forward slash school. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. We've been told time and time again about the success of Israel's response to and success with 
its vaccination rollout. Even back in May, Israel appeared to have achieved herd immunity with its aggressive vaccination program, helping the country achieve a staggering decrease in coronavirus cases. But there is a dark side to Israel's vaccination success story. Palestinians were left out of the success story, even though the first case was recorded in Palestine in March last year. Dr John Guy is a medical practitioner in Adelaide and a member of Australians for a Free Palestine. And on Sunday the 12th of September, John will speak on a Zoom with the topic Medical Apartheid, the Unequal Impact of COVID-19 on Israel and Palestine. I spoke with John recently and asked him to establish the responsibility of an occupying force for the well-being, i.e. access to medical well-being, of an occupying force, in this case Israel, in regard to West Bank and Gaza. Under the Geneva Convention, the fourth Geneva Convention, Article 56, which applies specifically to Israel, was required to provide to the population under occupation health care in regard to prevention of illness and other related matters. And this would apply specifically to things like immunisation. And as far as I'm aware, that has been the case before. So specifically would apply to things like COVID, immunisation. Well, they haven't had a very good record, I know, with health <clears throat> issues before. But what have you learned about what Israel has done to keep up with that, what they're supposed to do in the circumstances of COVID? No, I don't think so, uh, because first of all, I think that Israel is going to apply you know, their obligations under this um, convention, and they should be immunising or should have immunised not only their own population, which they did very rapidly and effectively, but they should have at the same time rolled out a similar programme of immunisation the uh, Palestinians under, under their control. In fact, what happened was that Israel was one of the first countries to begin immunisation, in December, it wasn't until March 21 that um, Israel started immunising Palestinians, but even at this point, they were looking after their own interests because uh, in March 21, Israel started immunising workers coming into Israel from territories to work. So obviously the idea there was that they didn't want the Palestinians bringing in the virus to Israel. Eventually, in March uh, 17th uh, this year, 37,500 Pfizer and 24,000 AstraZeneca doses were delivered to the West Bank and Gaza. But um, again, this wasn't delivered by Israel. It's delivered under the international COVAX program, which has been set up to deliver vaccines to disadvantaged countries around the world. What do you know about the story where some of those vaccines that Israel supplied to the Palestinians were actually near their use by date? Yes, that's true. Now, um, there was a number, I don't know how many thousands, several thousand Pfizer immunizations were offered to the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian Authority refused them. Now, I would need to preface this um, by saying that swapping vaccines that are close to their use by date in a kind of a deal is not unknown, as, as probably uh, your listeners would be aware. The Australian government has agreed to swap some vaccines between Singapore and Australia. However, in the case of these vaccines, um, the reason that the Palestinian Authority returned to Israel wasn't just that they were close to the use by date. And, and I would say in parenthesis that Israel had requested that a similar number of vaccines that were in date be returned to them from the Palestinian Authority 
when they receive them. But the reason that the Palestinian Authority did not neutralize these vaccines was that Israel put a condition on that they were not to be sent to Gaza. So are you saying that no vaccines have gone to Gaza? No, I'm not saying no vaccines have gone to Gaza because they have been coming in. And um, I'd have to probably just look up from some of my data here exactly how they've got. Yeah, immunizations are taking place in Gaza. At the moment, about 7% of people have been immunized. And it may be less than that. As you know, in Israel itself, between 60 and 70% have been vaccinated. And in the West Bank, what are the percentages? In the occupied territories, it's 466,000. That's, as a percentage, that's around about 11% as of the 15th of July. Um, and getting figures that are right up to date is quite difficult for various reasons, which I, I may explain later if, if needed. In Gaza, 93,670 people were immunised as of the 15th of July. In the occupied territories in Gaza taken together, fully vaccinated is 8% as of the 15th of July. I would also say in parenthesis, uh, and this is part of what I'll be talking about here in Adelaide, is that the same day in Australia, we'd only immunised 11%. So I think if we look upon it as a glass half full perspective as of that date. Are there enough nurses to administer these vaccines in, in the West Bank and Gaza? The answer is that there are many fewer nurses in Gaza than there are in Israel and, uh, and in other parts of the world. So I can give you a bit of an idea. The people who administer vaccines obviously are in the main nurses. The number of nurses per thousand population in Gaza is four. Uh, in Israel, it's uh, nearly six. And in Adelaide, we have 17. So you can see that, and if you listen to what nurses are saying uh, and other health workers here in Australia, how difficult it is at the current time to keep up with immunisation, uh, you can imagine how, uh, how difficult it would be for the four nurses per thousand population in Gaza to do the same thing. You mentioned that it's difficult getting information. What did you mean by that? Well, I guess to get a snapshot of what's happening, you need there are very crude figures like how many cases and how many deaths. Those figures are easy to obtain in, in their numerical terms, but it's often hard to interpret them. And to give you an example of what I mean, in terms of testing, so in April, uh, again, I suppose trying to get up-to-date figures is more difficult. So in April this year, in Gaza, there were an average of 2,500 tests being conducted every day. This is a really, really telling figure. The rate of positive tests was 30%. And that's an incredibly high figure. I can't today here in Australia, but the number of positive tests, say in Adelaide, will be close to zero. In New South Wales, it would be a little higher, but there'd still be just a handful, maybe a dozen positive tests in 20 or 30,000 tests. So what this means is there is a vast number of cases occurring which have not been tested and therefore don't show up for numbers. And that's what I mean by that difficulty in numbers, to know whether the numbers of cases that we see uh, actually represents the total number that are sick with COVID. Why do I believe the figures of posit the rate of positivity is high? Obviously because of a large number of people who have got infection. You might say, well, okay, well, they'd all be very ill. Well, many of them wouldn't be. Uh, another important thing to remember that the population of Gaza aged under 14 is 42%. You could say almost half the population of Gaza is under 14 or 15 years of age. 
And children uh, of that age typically get a very mild condition, a very mild COVID. So it's quite likely there are hundreds, if not thousands, of, of gardens with what the bad cold getting on. I can't say that for a fact, but when you see a positivity rate of 30%, it suggests that something's going on there. Also overcrowding? Yes, people who live in Adelaide. The size of Gaza is approximately half the size of metropolitan Adelaide. So Adelaide is uh, 80 kilometres by 20 and Gaza is 40 by 10. That gives a population ratio of about, in Gaza, 3,000 people per square kilometre. In Adelaide, we have 1,500. So overcrowding, yes, of course, as we know, the housing stock in Gaza is diminished uh, from time to time. It certainly was diminished in May this year when there was another strike by Israel with rockets against Gaza. I'd imagine, too, in Gaza, they talk about the fact that most of the children are malnourished, and I'd imagine that the adults aren't doing too well either. Does that presuppose that people will get the virus easier and not recover as well? Yes, uh, it would certainly suggest that, yeah. I think 70% of the population of Gaza is receiving some sort of food relief from international organisations of various kinds. What do you know about the health system in the West Bank prior to COVID? I don't know much about the health system in the West Bank in particular um, because I have focused on Gaza. Um, I can give you the number of hospitals, but that doesn't really tell you what's going on. Um, a better way of looking at this is go back and look at um, the number of hospital beds per thousand population in particular. It's 1.2 hospital beds per thousand population. Uh, Israel's 3.2 and Adelaide's nearly 4. Intensive care beds are a little better in Gaza. They have 35 per million people. In Adelaide, we've got 94. So you can see that Gaza is really doing it hard with unquestionably increased cases many, many times over what's being seen in other parts of the world and managing on resources which are 20 to 30% or at the most 50% of what is elsewhere. Thinking also about the training of doctors in Gaza during what we might call normal times, not COVID, there would be NGOs going to Gaza, doctors, specialists, to assist. Now with COVID, these people can't go. That must be really making the situation worse. Yes, it is. That is absolutely true. There are attempts to address this, and my reading indicates that there are no courses in intensive care medicine for registered doctors, uh, those who might be working in other specialties, they can do intensive care courses, which are mostly online, so that they can learn them in place. So that's one way to try and build into that gap and shortfall of uh, specialist intensive care doctors. And then you need the infrastructure. And we know that when Israel decides that they'll have another bombing of Gaza, often, or maybe not often, but hospitals and clinics are targeted. They are. And... The word that you've targeted, I think, has a particular importance. One of the centre points of uh, what I'll be talking about in Adelaide on Sunday is the fact that Gaza's leading COVID specialist, in fact, he was conducting the COVID programme for Gaza, Dr. Ayman Abeluf, who was the uh, head of internal medicine at uh, Al Shifa Hospital, which is the largest hospital in Gaza. Dr. Ayman had finished a shift at this hospital on Saturday, the 15th of May this year, went to his, his home, which was a four-storey 
block, uh, not far from the main hospital. He went home, went to bed in, early on Sunday, of May the 16th. Israeli rockets destroyed his home, killing him and 13 members of his family. And my contention is that Israeli rocket fire is accurate and uh, deliberate and targeted. So as far as I'm concerned, this is either a war crime or a terrorist act. And I've never seen, you know, I'd like to see the arguments against that. Your group in Adelaide, Friends of Palestine, have you been able to, in the past, send medical supplies and medical practitioners to Gaza? We have an eye specialist who travels, has been travelling until recently, of course, regularly. He goes to the West Bank, which is my hospital, but he has been to Gaza, but not since, I guess, security and in access has been raised by Israel. In other words, not for, I think, about seven years. We do send equipment, uh, medical equipment, we fundraise for that from the time to send to Gaza, but we haven't actually sent medical personnel. As a medical practitioner, what are your major concerns for the near future? Has Delta, the Delta virus reached Palestine or is it still the first one? No, no, it definitely has reached Palestine um, without any question. And it, it, it's also reached Israel, which I don't I dwell a few moments on. I was saying earlier, and I think many people know this, that Israel was way ahead of the pack in vaccinating its population. Uh, by March this year, I think they'd achieved 60%, as I was saying earlier. Israel is now in the, in the grip of a huge flare-up of uh, COVID um, due to Delta variant. They're introducing lockdowns and the hospitals are becoming full. The same situation is obviously occurring in Palestine and the figures I'm monitoring, which are right up to date, right up to yesterday, I think, so they're battling Delta just as the same as New South Wales and many other countries. Are you aware of any pressure that's been on Israel to lift their game regarding Palestinians and this virus? Yes, I am. I've got a very interesting interview with the uh, Minister of Health for Israel, a man called Yuri Edelstein, in January this year. He was interviewed uh, by the BBC. It was a good interview, a strong interview. And um, Andrew Maher asked uh, Yuri Edelstein why they were not fulfilling their obligations under the Geneva Convention, uh, as mentioned previously, uh, in providing uh, to Israel and, to, sorry, to Palestine. His response was that it wasn't his responsibility. 200 rabbis within Israel petitioned the health minister for vaccines to be provided to the Palestinians. So within Israel, there is pressure for the uh, Ministry of Health to provide vaccines to the Palestinians. How confident are you that that will happen? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I have no idea. I may be some vaccine there. Israel has also made something of itself as being, you know, as providing vaccines for certain other developing countries. I'm not sure whether they will honour any further obligations or not. Time will tell. Well, that's your connections with Palestine, with your group in Adelaide, but you've got a, another connection, haven't you? And that's a family connection, and that's your Aunt Mary. Tell us about Aunt Mary. Well, Aunt Mary was, she's deceased now, Aunt Mary was an aunt on my father's side of the family. Um, she was born in about 1920, um, maybe a little earlier. She was a fellow woman to London University for education. I'm not quite sure what she studied. 
they should, but um, while she was at university in 1948, she met a man called Salim Karnath. Salim uh, was from Reina in a little town or little village near Nazareth. They met there in 1948. So Aunt Mary eventually married Salim in 1949, and they had four children, uh, who are my cousins, uh, and we were very close to that family. Aunt Mary devoted herself mainly to raising children in her middle years, and in all of her years, she's been a very strong campaigner for Palestinian rights. So that's my connection to marriage. And what happened to Salem's family? Well, uh, Salem achieved very well. He, he did a PhD in statistics at um, University College. He eventually ended up working for the United Nations in Rome as a, as a statistician. His family were stateless, as many Palestinians are, and, and they went to Rome uh, to, obviously to live with uh, Salim. Uh, eventually, and I think this would probably be in the 80s, late 80s, Dr. Salim Karnath and the family were granted British citizenship, so they now have British passports. So the family lost their homes, their properties? They did, yeah. Salim applied to return to, well, it was, you probably heard him to say this, to Israel, because um, obviously Nazareth was subsumed within Israel. He applied to return to Israel to visit his family and his family home in 1949, but um, was, was refused admission to do that by the Israeli authorities. Uh, he eventually did return, but it was about five or six years later, on his own, without his family. His family never returned to that property? You know, separated. Uh, I think his generation of the family went overseas, as, as you're well aware, many Palestinians do, and, and many of them became very successful in their work. He had a brother who, uh, who went to the United Arab Emirates and became, I think, an architect. Uh, I know they have family in Canada. The generation that were born in the late teens, early 20s of the last century went overseas, and I think the old people stayed at home. And um, I don't think that the property was actually taken from them, but uh, there was not, obviously, anybody who left the village were not allowed to return. When did your activism for Palestine begin? Because you knew that story, or was there more to it? That's really where it started from. I grew up in England. I'm from England. I came to Australia in 1980. But all the time of growing up, we were, for various reasons which are not relevant to the program, my father had almost no relatives. So these, uh, this Palestinian family were a very few group of relatives, and so we saw a lot of them. Simon's oldest daughter, um, Thea, and we grew up together. So all the time that the state of Israel was sort of developing and uh, finding its feet, if you like, we were in close contact and seeing quite regularly as uh, Mary Salim, and we were hearing the other side of that story. Both my parents were probably slightly left of centre, but we weren't activists or campaigners for Palestinian rights in that stage. In fact, you, you may recall that those on the left in the 50s and 60s were somewhat beguiled by the Putin movement and, uh, and sort of socialism in Israel. So we kind of saw both sides of the story. To answer your question specifically, what got me sort of off my armchair, if you like, and into becoming an activist was Operation Cast Lead, which you recall about um, 10 or 11 years ago now, more, which was a gross, a, a gross abuse of, of power by Israel and, and slaughter of many innocent people and children in Gaza at that time. I thought, that's enough. 
I'm not going to be complicit in this. I'm going to become an activist. So I joined Friends of Palestine here in Adelaide. And what have you been doing since? Well, I joined the organisation and then they invited me to join the executive committee. I sat on the executive committee for seven years and you know, worked on many of the things which uh, the association uh, has worked on. In particular, we have a, a festival of dance here in Adelaide called One Adelaide. I'm sure you've heard of it. You might have been to it for celebrating the arts and culture and um, with, with international visitors from all over. And as well as music and as well as food, there are cultural stores there. There are uh, stores where organisations like AFOPA can... Uh, in fact, what we did, we exhibit Palestinian craft. We had a, a little historical exhibition of uh, pictures of, um, of what was happening in uh, Israel-Palestine in 1948. That was an idea that I had, and I oversaw that part of AFOPA's activities for about six years. Generally, I also am a BDS activist, or BDS protester um, in Rundle Mall here in Adelaide and I get out with uh, my wife Kathy about once every six to eight weeks and uh, carrying placards and handing out leaflets about Israel's occupation. You've been to Palestine? Yes I have yeah Kathy and I went about seven years ago as I I accept many of your listeners know you can join a, a guided study tour where you can go and visit the West Bank and visit universities and schools and hospitals and activists and social organisations. So we went all around. We went to see the places where importance um, to the occupation and importance to the Palestinians. I would say that it was um, life-changing in the sense that once having been there and having the background that I did, it it was a dramatic uh, eye-opener to what the realities of everyday life is like for Palestinians uh, and the relentless calibrated oppression on a micro and macro level by the Israeli government against the Palestinians is is something that really can only be seen and experienced to know how dreadful it must be for Palestinians. Were you looking at this as a, a medical practitioner or as a citizen? There are medical based tools, but this is a one, yeah, so just as a general citizen. What struck you the most? Oh, so many things to mention. I think a strong thing was the theft of water by Israel of Palestinian water, uh, water being you know, aquifers and, um, and various water sources being piped into Israel from Palestinian land or Palestinian side. The wonderful freeways going between the settlements, the settlements themselves, uh, on, usually on rooftops, um, settlements themselves, and then you know, beside or often underneath these freeways were the the old traction roads that the Palestinians had to use to get between their own towns and villages. It was very dramatic, very dramatic indeed. Talk a bit more about the checkpoints. Israeli person with us, and we were an official tour, so we went through checkpoints quite easily. But at one point, we did get out and go through where everyone was going. If anyone from the country has seen cattle have come into this gathering sort of uh, fencing, I suppose, which is um, you know, heavy metal and gradually coming through to the checkpoint uh, where they go through singly and sometimes they wait and wait and wait. And just, it, it was just horrible. I could just see the dispiriting uh, effect it had on people trying to move from one place to the other. And that's the effect they want? Yeah, unquestionably, yeah. Have you kept in touch with some people from that time? 
No, we haven't. No, we did meet um, many people. Obviously, we had uh, lunch with um, a family growing olives um, near one of the settlements and watched out of the window as Israeli youth came and pulled up some of their olive trees. And you read about these things, but then actually seeing it happen is quite a strong thing. But we haven't kept in touch with that family. Now, I have kept in touch with um, the woman who ran the tour, but only to refer the people to her. In addition to this interview, John, you are doing a presentation on a Sunday afternoon very <clears> soon. What will you be talking about in that? My topic for this talk is, I titled it Medical Apartheid. And I titled it that way to, partly to be provocative, but partly because I believe it to be true. So I'm focusing on the effect of the COVID virus on Palestine. The reason I'm doing this is that we can see around the world that the COVID virus has really stressed political systems and ideology and, and politicians. And you could have no better example of that than the United States and in Britain as well. And here, the countries have dealt with it differently. So I, I wondered how uh, Palestine, Gaza in particular, was coping with this virus. And so that's starting point. But as I delved into the topic, I found that, that this particular case of the, uh, I'm going to call it the murder of Dr. Abulov, the COVID specialist in, in Gaza. And I also found uh, several instances of, of where medical care had been denied or delayed uh, to Palestinians by Israel. So those are the focal points of uh, this talk. Thanks very much, John. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this uh, topic, which I care a lot about. And I was speaking to Dr. John Guy from Adelaide. And the Zoom is on Sunday, 12th of September at 5pm. That's Adelaide time, so it's 5.30 Eastern Standard Time. The topic is medical apartheid, the unequal impact of COVID-19 on Israel and Palestine. I think you'll be able to find it from that description. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to community since 1976. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Victoria, to keep us safe, we know what to do. There are only five reasons to leave home. Shopping for food and supplies that you need. Exercise, both within five kilometres of your home or as close to home as possible. Care and caregiving. Authorised work or education if you can't do it from home. Getting vaccinated as soon as you're eligible. Masks are mandatory indoors and outdoors. And if you have any symptoms, get tested. For the latest updates, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne, a 3CR supporter. The US President has said that the partnership between the US and Australia remains as essential today as it's ever been. In a video posted on the 70th anniversary of the alliance between the two countries, the ANZUS Treaty. But that alliance is increasingly being challenged. And today I'm speaking with Dr Alison Boronoski, Vice President of World Powers Reform, about this and a number of other issues. But first, Alison, a little history. How and why 
did the ANZUS Alliance come into being? It was the Cold War, plus the fact that Australia and New, and New Zealand were absolutely paranoid about Japan. And they could see after 1945 that the United States was going to back Japan and rebuild it and, in fact, turn it into an American ally. Australia and New Zealand, remembering the war very, very vividly, just hated the idea of having a rearmed Japan in the region. And so the price that they extracted from negotiations in the United States was we want a treaty that guarantees our security. And if we get that, we will accept a rebuilt Japan. That's what happened. In fact, after Percy Spender did his negotiations on it in Washington, the Americans actually pulled a Swifty on Australia. And as usual, we were conned. Much was made by Spender and Menzies of the virtues of the ANZUS Treaty. But in fact, it doesn't guarantee our security at all. It looks as if it does, because it says that the parties will come to each other's aid in a crisis in the Pacific area. But in fact, that doesn't commit anybody to anything because further down in the treaty, they say that they agree to consult if there is a threat to any of the three and to act in accordance with their constitutional processes. So that just means that in the case of the United States, all they would do would be to go to the Congress and say, look, Australia and New Zealand are being threatened by someone or other. Do we have congressional approval to go to war? The Congress would say no. And then that's it. And they would come back to us and say, we're terribly sorry, but you know, our constitutional processes don't agree that we can defend you in this particular case. There's never been such uh, a case arise, of course. And the only time when the ANZUS Treaty has actually been invoked was by John Howard in 2001, two days after the bombing of New York and Washington on 9-11. Howard unilaterally invoked the ANZUS Treaty and said that it obliged Australia to come to America's aid anywhere in the world in the war on terror. And the war on terror, of course, as I think I may have said to you before, was God's gift to the militarists because it guaranteed that a war that would go on and on and on and keep getting funded with more and more and more money. And nobody would ever know if they'd won it or lost it Nobody would even know whether terror had increased or declined. Nobody would even know who the enemy was. And so the ANZUS Treaty has been manipulated in that way, extended beyond its actual terms on paper, talked up particularly by Australia for years and years and years to look as if it is something that it is not. And Australians, ordinary Australians out there who don't spend all their time thinking about this, uh, don't know that it actually doesn't guarantee US defence of Australia at all. Just looking over those years, Alison, what has that treaty meant for the ordinary Australian? Well, what it has come to mean is that the ordinary Australian has been taught that America saved Australia in the Second World War. They think that the ANZUS Treaty guarantees that that will happen again in the event of another war. As payment for that, the ordinary Australian generally accepts that we have to fight with the United States all over the place 
not necessarily by invoking the Anzus Treaty, although that was done in 2001, but it obliges the ordinary Australian considers, because they're told again and again, that it obliges Australia to stand shoulder to shoulder, as Malcolm Turnbull said, with the United States whenever they want to go to war. This hasn't mattered perhaps so much when we were well, we were fighting wars that were not close to us. We went to Vietnam for that. We went to Korea for that. When we were fighting in the Middle East, in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan, it wasn't as if Australia was in the least threatened. We sort of forgot about the illegality of those wars and the irrational reason for which we were there. But now that all of that war in West Asia has finished, the Americans are now moving. They've always got to have a war on the next war plan, which is China. Now, that is actually very serious for us, much more serious for us than for the United States, because, as I think I might have said to you before, if China decided to teach the United States a lesson, one way of doing it would be to attack its ally, Australia, and show the United States what it could do to a, a small and insignificant country at the bottom of the region. This would be very damaging for us. They would attack U.S. bases in Darwin and elsewhere, very likely. If it only stopped at that, it wouldn't be so bad, but the retaliation would be worse. Just go back a couple of steps. How has New Zealand dealt with the ANZUS Treaty? Well, as you know, New Zealand left the ANZUS Treaty in 1968. The reason being that the United States wanted to stage nuclear warships through New Zealand ports during the Vietnam War. The New Zealanders said, no way, we are an anti-nuclear state and we won't have it. So the United States said, well, in that case, um, you're not part of the Anders Treaty. And they said, OK, so we're not. Ever since then, it's been like a dot dot US. Nevertheless, New Zealand was told that it wouldn't have access to American intelligence anymore. But what Australia did was we fed intelligence to the New Zealanders and the New Zealanders remained in the Five Eyes arrangement, which was set up in 1947. So they weren't kicked out of that. So they got intelligence that way for all the good that it did. Because remember, it was that intelligence that took us into the war in Iraq. And it was that intelligence that erroneously told us that we were winning the war in Afghanistan. But New Zealand hasn't suffered from leaving the ANZUS Treaty. As far as Australia, and you're going to ask what, whether we should do the same as New Zealand, as far as Australia is concerned, if you sign up for a treaty, in my view, you stay in that treaty. It's a solemn obligation. We were shocked when Trump said he wanted to get rid of all his treaties. I see no purpose in Australia inflaming the United States' opinion by abrogating the treaty. The thing for Australia to do, I think, at this particular time, is to conduct a review of the ANZUS Treaty, first by ourselves, and then with the result of that, take the results of that review to the United States and say, let's sit down and modernise this treaty. Let's make it applicable to the modern world, which has greatly changed since 1952, which, if we are going to continue to have this treaty, we want it to work as it was intended. What would your terms of reference be? 
it would depend, of course, on what on the outcome of an Australian review of the treaty. But it would spell out much more clearly than has been done the precise role and control of the basis used by the United States and Australia, how those are used all the time in American war fighting without any consultation with the Australian government of the day. In other words, we are fighting a constant war about which Australians hear nothing. And that is one of the very um, important aspects in which the ANZUS Treaty needs a review. The other is that since the ANZUS Treaty was signed, well, before ANZUS, we signed the UN Charter, which said that we will not threaten or use force against other countries. It is, in fact, in the um, ANZUS Treaty. It's one of the opening paragraphs. It actually, as one of my colleagues says, it, it is a treaty about peace, if you read it correctly. But we need to strengthen those elements in the treaty and make it clear that we don't go to wars of aggression or expeditionary wars, as they're called. The only way we are interested in going to war with or without the United States is if such a war is, has the uh, approval of the UN Security Council or if it is in direct respo response to a direct attack on Australia, in which case it's self-defence, and, and that is legitimate. Has this treaty in one sense reinforced the purchase of more and more US weapons? There are two ways of looking at that. They take two different views on this. The Hawks, like people at Aspie and others, some journalists, the United States is a declining power. We've got a rising power in our region. The way for us to deal with it is to arm ourselves to the teeth and have way more investment in weaponry and arms um, than we have at the moment. Now, if that would ever be enough to defeat China, um, I would be very surprised. So why do it? The other um, approach to that question is the diplomatic one, which is to say, if we can't defeat China, and there's absolutely no way we could, a determined Chinese attack on Australia would succeed. If that's the case, then the only option we have is to get on better with our neighbours, particularly China, not to aggravate the differences between us, to observe our neighbours' approaches to China, because they are exactly the same situation as we have. Our, our neighbours in Southeast Asia are closer to China than we are and are equally concerned about the rise of China and what that means for their security. We need to discuss with them how they deal with this and see if there aren't ways in which we can all get on better with China and stop making the Chinese so angry. One of the ways to do that, of course, and this would be the first piece of advice that people like Kishore Mababani in Singapore would give us, is to observe that China was oppressed for a century by Western powers, and they're over it. They don't want to do it anymore. And they want respect for their successes. They want regard for their achievements. And that's not a hard thing for diplomats to do. That's the kind of thing that China would accept, as long as it was genuinely offered. We would find that we would get on a whole lot better with China if we did that kind of thing than constantly telling them what's wrong with them or what's wrong with their human rights, but not listening to them when they tell us what's wrong with ours.
Well, Alison, what freedom do the diplomats have to take this approach when you've got a government that continues to criticise China? In recent times, the freedom of our diplomats to do anything of, of the kind that I've just described is pretty limited, I have to say. And, and even people at the top of DFAT have been very aggressive in their statements about China, which doesn't help at all. It's not diplomatic to do that. And it also doesn't help when our ministers think that it plays well for them in Australia if they get all aggressive and unpleasant towards China, which they do quite often. And the Chinese hate it. I mean, when the ambassador of 14 things we got wrong, Every single one of them was correct, yet he received no credit for that. Whether any of our diplomats went and sat down with the ambassador and said, look, we've understood your points. Let's see whether we can apply some of these in practice. Meanwhile, we'd like you, for instance, to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, this is the way diplomacy works. Now, if it's been working like that, I don't see any results of it. The people, as I mentioned at ASPE, but elsewhere, who advocate what's called a hard-headed or hairy-chested approach to China seem to be in the ascendancy. Anybody who talks the kind of peaceful talk that I've just been advocating is regarded as limp-wristed and not likely to be good promotionable material. And I'm afraid that's the way Australian diplomacy is now played. Well, what do they expect as an outcome of being like that? the outcome of taking that approach? You have to wonder, don't you? I mean, I don't have opportunities to ask them what they expect the outcome to be, but I, I can't understand why they would think that it's a good idea to provoke a conflict with China, which we would lose, certainly, with or without the United States. It would only be a matter of time. If the Afghanistan war went on for 20 years, and we couldn't beat the Taliban, you do have to wonder whether we and the United States and their NATO, NATO allies and anybody else could beat the Chinese in attacking their home territory. It just would not work. And the potential for disaster, particularly a nuclear disaster, is very grave. Well, there's two other separate but related issues, and one is the Senate to debate the Greens bill to restrict the PMs and Cabinet's power to deploy troops overseas. And the second is, why doesn't Australia ever have an inquiry into why we go to war? First, the Greens bill in Parliament, has that already gone to Parliament? It was in Parliament uh, on Monday. Your listeners might like to uh, listen to the debate because it was very revealing. Senator Steele John, of course, who was a co-author of the bill, spoke uh, very strongly in its favour. He had one Greens member uh, also supporting him and making, making some very interesting points that I hadn't heard made before. Uh, and then there were a couple of, of uh, coalition members who, of course, both spoke against it, particularly Erica Betts from Tasmania, who is dead set against he debated it all, didn't want it to progress any further and, and wouldn't agree to any part of that. But most disappointing for me was the response of Labour, where Christina Camilli claimed, to, to my surprise, that if we 
had reformed the war powers, we would not have been able to send RAF planes to Afghanistan to bring Australians out. I don't know where she got that from, but that is absolute rubbish because the RAF planes were not allowed to go in there because of our war powers, not in the slightest. They were there because they're part of the American coalition and the Americans had negotiated under Trump for there to be a handover period at the airport to get everybody out for as many as they could. That had absolutely nothing to do with reforming our war powers because there were other countries who evacuated their citizens who had war powers in their constitutions. From I don't think she really understands the, the bill or the issue. And I was sorry about that. The other thing that I was disappointed in was that Labour promised us twice in, in two uh, Labour Party conferences in 2018 and again this year that in the first term of a, lay, a new Labour government, they would inquire into the war powers and consider whether they needed reform. What they're saying is now actually beginning to become clear to me, and that is that they will recommend such an inquiry and it will be to the Joint Committee on Foreign Affairs, Trade and Defence. In other words, the very same committee where all the people who don't want the form of the war powers are concentrated. One or two are in favour of it. But if they put it into that committee, it will be defeated unless there is big change of uh, committee membership following the next election, which is uncertain. The other thing that Labour is doing is they're saying, particularly on uh, Michael West Media, which is interviewing all the politicians about this issue, and the Labour ones who they've interviewed and who come out saying as if they're in favour of it, you'll notice that actually what they're saying is they want scrutiny of the war powers. And scrutiny doesn't mean anything more than what we've now got. Anybody can scrutinise the war powers. That just means reading the Constitution, having a look at being done, reading a bit of, of history and so on. But it doesn't guarantee doing anything. What is needed is a commitment not to scrutinise a, a motion to go to war, but to have a debate and a vote in the parliament on that motion. And there are some Labour people who are hiding behind that expression. How do we compare to other Western countries? The old Commonwealth countries... Canada, Australia, New Zealand, have similar war powers in their constitution. That is, they are in the hands of the Governor-General. And the Governor-General, who was, of course, the British uh, representative of the British Crown at the time when the constitution was written, then delegates those powers to the Prime Minister of the day, who is not mentioned in our constitution at all. The Prime Minister of the day then has what is called the sovereign prerogative, which goes right back to the days of, of um, sovereign, of the power of the king. 
the, the prime minister of the day in Australia can, in effect, send the troops to war just by ordering the defence minister to act in accordance with the Defence Act in such a way as to administer the troops and send them off somewhere. The Prime Minister would often do this in the National Security Committee of Cabinet, which makes it sound good, but in fact, the members of the National Security Committee are all his senior ministers, and they're people who owe their job to him, and they're not going to either argue against it or question why we're doing it, what it will cost, what are the chances of success, who the enemy really is, when it is all going to come to an end, and what the advantages and costs for Australia are going to be. In effect, we go to war the same way now as we have always done ever since the Federation and before. What we are trying to do in Australians for War Powers Reform is simply change the Defence Act in such a way that it is necessary before that happens for there to be a debate and a vote in the Parliament, which means that we're using the democratic system in the way it was designed to be used. And it doesn't mean that if there's an emergency, the troops wouldn't be sent to war. Of course, they would very quickly. But if there is a long lead time to a war, as there usually is, then the issues confronting us would be carefully discussed, as they are in most other democracies. Now, that comes back to your question. There have been surveys done of all the governments in the world. All the ones with relatively modern constitutions have a war powers review clause in them. Some of them even have a recommendation for a report back to the parliament every so often on the progress of the war, which is something that Senator Steele John included in, in his bill. And others say that there must be clarity about it being not an expeditionary war, not a war of aggression, and so on. All of which is in keeping with international law and in keeping with the UN Charter. So this ought not to be a very difficult matter for Australia to negotiate. One or two of other comparable countries don't have these provisions. France doesn't, for instance. It's very much in the hands of the president there, but there is provision for consultation. The Americans have been trying to revise their war powers legislation ever since it was passed in 1973 in the middle of the Vietnam War. There's a recent bill that's just been put up before the Congress by three senators to change things and make it very much more explicit about who the enemy is, what it's going to cost, etc., etc., all those things that I said, and more, because the United States, would you believe, has got more than 30 what they call uh, anachronistic wars going right back to the 1970s, which are still on the books, never been concluded. And this bill proposes to get rid of all of those and stop such things being able to happen again. In the United Kingdom, on the other hand, I mean, I'm skipping a lot of other countries, but we often compare ourselves there, which doesn't have a constitution. There are a series of conventions, and one of the conventions is about the war powers. Both houses of the US Parliament, of the UK Parliament, have been trying for years to get it legislated rather than just be a convention, get it spelled out in legislation. And successive governments have said they'll do it, but they don't succeed. So they are still without legislated war powers. But ever since Tony Blair sent the troops to the war in Iraq, it has been expected that um, such a declaration would be debated in the House of Commons. 
indeed it was, and Tony Blair won, and they sent the troops because he lied and said that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, which he didn't. And then later, when David Cameron wanted to send British troops uh, to uh, Syria, he had a debate and a vote in the House, and he lost. And they never made that mistake again, because Theresa May then constructed, in 2018, constructed an emergency, which wasn't one, to do with chemical weapons use alleged by the Syrian government against its own people, mind you, engineered that, and France, Britain, and the United States all bombed various sites in Syria in retaliation, they said, for that. And she said that was an emergency. So the worry is that if you provide for an emergency in your war powers, as every country does, you have to be very explicit about whether it's genuine or not. A genuine emergency, it would seem, and certainly Steele John's bill proposes this, a genuine emergency is a direct attack on the territory of, of Australia. Are you encouraged by the fact that they actually got that debate going? I am. It's the fifth time, you know, since 1985 that, that we have had an attempt to do this. The Democrats tried it in 1985, and um, Scott Ludlam had a couple of tr cracks at it too, fourth time perhaps. It's encouraging because it means that people like you and me and your listeners are talking about it. We have put a lot of material up on the Australians for War Powers Reform website about it. There have been mentions of it uh, in the media. And I've been doing interviews like this quite often, which means that more people are hearing it and getting it and understanding it. Another thing that gives me encouragement is that IPAN, the Independent Peaceful and Australia Network, which is all over Australia, is currently holding a year-long survey or, or consultation with anybody who wants to put in a submission about these matters and other things, particularly the costs of war, costs in a military sense, in a foreign affairs sense, but also environmental, human rights, and social and economic sense. I'm editing some of those for them. They are very intelligent responses, some long, some short, but well argued, and it shows me that the authors of these submissions, and some of them come from groups, some just from individuals, are well informed and concerned and very worried about these issues. So they do understand them. And when you and I talk about the ordinary Australian, I'm not too sure who we're really talking about, because these people are ordinary Australians. Some of them are academics, most are not. Some are, have had experience in government, most have not. And so they are, many of them, what you might call ordinary Australians, and they get it. So that is encouraging for me. And the other encouraging thing is, I suppose, this survey that uh, Michael West is doing, because that too reaches people, and people will read it, and every politician in the federal government is invited to respond, and the response, including no comment, is put up on Michael West's website. And at the end of that process, we'll be able to run a ruler over it and say, these are the ones who are completely in favour of it. These are the ones who are completely against it. These are the ones who won't say anything. And these are the ones who are sitting on the fence. And that in itself enables people in those electorates 
to say to their sitting member or their senator, I don't agree with your position on this, or I do, whichever it is. And it means, once again, that the democratic process would be operating as it's designed to do, instead of leaving this matter in the hands of the Prime Minister alone. Also in that democratic process, shouldn't there be an inquiry into why we go to war and the consequences? Yes. And in fact, that's another, thanks for reminding me, that is in fact another very encouraging thing that has come out of the retreat from Afghanistan. Because I understand there is to be uh, an inquiry into that. That is exactly what we have always wanted in respect of the Iraq war. Australians for War Powers Reform started out actually as a, as a campaign to get an inquiry into how we got into that war. And then we moved on to, to concentrate on war powers. But going backwards, an inquiry into how we went into the Afghanistan war is absolutely required and essential. And I'm hoping that we haven't any terms of reference yet, but I'm hoping that it will be independent and the results will be completely made public. We don't want it to be politicised by one side or the other who were, were involved, although several successive governments were. We want it to be open and factual, and we want it to take into account, I suppose, the results of the Brereton inquiry into war crimes in Afghanistan, because it seems to me that when we go to war without our soldiers being completely clear about what the hell they're fighting for, or why they're there, or why it is that they've had to go back there four times, why it is that their senior officers are not giving them the kind of understanding of these matters that they should have, or of the boundaries around their own operations, then you get bad behaviour. And that is a disgrace for Australia. Frankly, it's one of the reasons why we've lost it, because our fighting forces were ineffective. And I was speaking there with Dr Alison Pronoska who's the Vice President of War Powers Reform. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. Return today to the desperate human rights situation in West Papua, exacerbated by the COVID pandemic. 
the corporate media, while reporting on areas far away from Australia, seem reluctant to inform Australians of what is occurring on its doorstep. Today we focus once again on the role of the AFP, the Australian Federal Police, in Indonesia, which has serious consequences for West Papua, as well as many countries in our region, also far away, the AFP has internal operatives incorporating liaison officers, police advisors and missions. And under the listing of Bali is the area of responsibility for Indonesia, including West Papua and West Timor. Jason McLeod is a 30-year activist in support of West Papua independence and concerned to expose the role of the AFP in Indonesia, which also impacts on West Papua. Jason, we've spoken about this previously, but I think it's important to reiterate what your research has shown about the role of the AFP and its impact on West Papua because people's lives are at stake. One of the organisations I helped set up with West Papua to make West Papua safe, we've actually been building a campaign around the Australian Federal Police and looking in quite some detail at their work in Indonesia. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'll really happily go into that and also um, about West Papua, of course. So after the, uh, the Bali bombing, uh, the big Bali bombing in uh, Legian and, and Kusa in 2002, the AFP helped set up with the, with the US government and with the Indonesian government, they set up a counter-terrorism police force called Special Detachment 88. So this is like a paramilitary police unit. And that unit, they worked very closely with, uh, with the founding commander, a guy by the name of Tito Carnavian. He went on to become the chief of police in West Papua. And then after setting up the 88, the Australian Federal Police went on to set up a police training school uh, in Jakarta called the Jakarta Centre for Law Enforcement Cooperation. So just um, before talking more about JCLEC, that Jakarta Centre for Law Enforcement Cooperation, I just want to go back and just talk a bit more about Special Detachment 88 or D88 as it's known. And the 88 stands for the 88 people who lost their life um, in, the, in the Bali bombing. That police unit has been used to target political activists in West Papua, and it was implicated in a number of extrajudicial killings shortly after it was set up. And the commanding officer at the time was this fellow Tito Carnavian. Um, now, he's gone on now to be the minister for the interior and for a long time worked very and still does work very closely with the AFP. So D88 has since then, it's, it's retained its kind of function, uh, counter-terrorism function, but it's also been embedded in military operations. So there's been a war in the West Papuan Highlands um, that has intensified. There's always been been a war, basically an undeclared war against the West Papuans um, ever since Indonesia, Indonesian government took over. 
But that war intensified in December 2018 uh, in a place called Induga over a road that was being built. And it's since spread to include some of the neighbouring regions uh, in Tanjaya and Punchak. And the Special Detachment 88 or D88 is integrated with the Indonesian police operations. And they've been involved with a number of killings of civilians uh, and hundreds and hundreds of people have died. Most of those people who've died have actually been civilians fleeing the conflict who've taken shelter uh, in the forests uh, and then have died of hunger or exposure. So Make West Papua Safe has been working very closely with uh, human rights workers um, and humanitarian workers who, all West Papuans, who are supporting the people fleeing that conflict. And what the Indonesian military and police have also done is as they've gone into these places, they have bombed the churches, which basically act as gathering places for communities. They've destroyed the food gardens and people's houses as well. One of the reasons they're doing this is to gain access to resources. So in Intanjaya, for instance, the giant Anglo... American and the Australians, uh, the Australian company Rio Tinto is heavily involved with this, as well as a number of uh, smaller contractors. Um, there's, there's over there's hundreds and hundreds of Australian contractors who are kind of linked into the Freeport mine. So Freeport has been trying to extend their gold mining operations into Intanjaya, and they've set up a subsidiary company and that also has links to the police and the military because in Indonesia the police and the military provide security they also run uh, you know a whole lot of operations in there and in many cases illegal you know gold mining operations that companies paid the Indonesian police and military millions tens hundreds of millions of dollars Uh, over the years to provide security. So the Indonesian police and military is heavily invested in maintaining the conflict in order to remain, and emptying the civilian population, which is basically a genocide, uh, you know, against the Induga nation and and the Moni and and other, uh, the mayor and other people, you know, in that conflict area. In order to maintain or gain access to those resources. Now, the AFP's involvement in all of this is that it has continued to work closely with TJ Carnivian. He was invited onto their board, uh, board of management, for, for a period of time. And then they have continued to train uh, Indonesian police officers. AFP set up the Jakarta Centre for Law Enforcement Cooperation, as I said, um, that was in the early 2000s. Since then, they have trained over 21,000 Indonesian police. 21,000. Now, those folks have included people like Tito Carnavian, as I said, who's implicated uh, in extrajudicial killings of political activists, particularly from the West Papua National Committee. 
It's included people like Boy Rafli Ama, who's now the head of the Indonesian Counterterrorism Agency and who was the chief of police in Papua when the Panai massacre took place uh, on December 8th, 2014. And Boy Rafli Armas was the commander of a number of mobile paramilitary police, called them Bremob, who were involved in some extrajudicial killings in uh, a neighbour village in Panai region in the Highlands in August 2017. And those officers uh, and Rafli Arma were never brought to justice. Uh, Rafli Arma's response was simply to ask his men to apologise to the victims' families. And this happens again and again. There's just no accountability of the Indonesian police. So you have a situation where the Australian Federal Police run a training institute, increase or strengthen the capacity of the Indonesian police who are acting as a violent occupying force for personal material gains from resource extractive resource colonialism in the highlands and right across uh, West Papua. And, and it, get, it gets worse too. There's, a, there's another p- police officer, a guy by the name of Untung Sangaji. He's currently the chief of police in Merauke, which is uh, a city in the south of West Papua. Now, he was trained by the AFP. He told The Guardian uh, in an article that was published a a few weeks ago that when the AFP calls, we pick up our phone. We answer. There's a very, very important relationship for us. He said that directly. And Sangachi has been involved in the deaths of custody of two, two activists in Merauke. He's publicly said that if people are involved in calling for freedom or raising their flag, he will shoot them. Uh, he will chop them up. These are the words that he's used. And the AFP trained him. Now, the AFP, under questioning in Parliament, has basically refused to vet who they train. So in other words, they said they don't care if they train people involved with human rights, involved in human rights violations, because they, they are not excluding people who have been involved in such violence. And they have said they have got no, they do no monitoring or evaluation of what happens to the alumni who've trained. So this basically gives political cover to the Indonesian police who, like I said, work very closely with the Indonesian military, to continue to carry out human rights violations against ordinary West Papuans. The Australian government knows all about this, and they are just ignoring it. I mean, you have the Australian ambassador in Jakarta who sits on the board of JCLEC, and they are refusing to do anything about it and are directly complicit in violence in occupied West Papua. You've been listening to Jason McLeod and... We'll hear more from Jason on the program next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.